Welcome to the Thrive at 20 podcast, where we're celebrating 20 years of Thrive Partnership Group by sitting down with leaders who have helped shape the legacy of the organization. Here's founder Rob Sagan in conversation with one of those leaders today. Good morning, Thrive at 20 podcast listeners. We're very pleased this morning to be joined by Vice President of Market Access and Value at Moratti Therapeutics in the U.S., Tom Boeing. So, Tom, welcome to our podcast series. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate uh, you having me. Uh, you're welcome. So, you're joining us from the suburbs of Cincinnati, Ohio. Is that correct? That's correct. And you're on the beautiful rolling hills of the Kentucky side, if I remember correctly. Your your place is gorgeous. Had a chance to drop in and visit with you on our way to a meeting recently. And man, I love that country. It's just absolutely beautiful. And uh, you must really enjoy living there, Tom. Uh, very blessed, and and absolutely. And this this time of year is, uh, in my opinion, the the best time of year with the the fall foliage and uh, cool autumn nights. So uh, yeah, it's a great it's a great place to raise a family. So, Tom, did you always live around there? Did you do your high school years in that area, or is that something that you chose after you started to work? No, I've been uh, very fortunate. Uh, uh, born, raised in uh, in in the area. Um, attended uh, college in uh, the southeast in uh, South Carolina, but uh, but after uh, graduation, I moved back to the area and um, uh, somehow I've been able to navigate my professional career all out of uh, Cincinnati. Do you uh, have you stayed in touch with some of the uh, folks that you went through high school with and came back and did some of those? Uh, Friendships stay intact. Uh, they did. It's. Uh, I went to a, an all boys Catholic school, and so there's a, a bit of a, a brotherhood amongst the alumni, and so it's um, a very tight knit community and uh, friendships that have uh, been been around for a long time. Oh, that's nice. So, so let's start with the decision to go south for your university education. I think your education was at Wolford College, right? Is that correct? That's correct, Wolford College. Yeah, you did your undergrad there in economics, if I remember correctly, and played a little football. Is that uh, is that the story? That that is the story, absolutely. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the the head coach at the time for Walford is actually from the uh, Greater Cincinnati area, and so he uh, recruited a number of kids from this area, primarily out of uh, kind of the all boys Catholic schools. Um, uh, academically, uh, felt comfortable with. Um, Going to a school like Wofford is very, uh, very academically focused and challenged, challenging, um, and then also uh, have a, a strong reputation in terms of the uh, football program. So um, he had a tendency to bring a lot of guys down to South Carolina from there. What was that like for a young Thomas coming from Ohio and landing in the Carolinas? It must have been quite a difference in the in the environment, the culture. Uh, I've traveled extensively through those areas and there's a there's a there's a lot of contrast between those cultures what was it like for you at what 18 19 years old to end up in the Carolinas playing football it was uh very eye-opening um South Carolina in 19 in the 90s is very different than South Carolina in, in the 2020s and so um culturally very different um but uh I always say the the academic experience of college is one thing, but uh, just really learning a different culture, a different part of the country um, was as beneficial as the the work in the classroom. And so certainly an adjustment um, early days, but you uh, you really grow to appreciate. um, And, uh, you know, for myself, just absolutely fell in love with uh, the Carolinas and and really the, the um, the whole culture down there. So can you recall what the first couple of weeks on campus was like, Tom, you probably had to show up early to get started with the football program, but once classes began and you were in full swing, the football program, what was that like for you? So the, I, I always say, um, and I have a daughter right now who's, who's playing college athletics. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a very uh, efficient way to, to enter college. And what I mean by that is, you're you're typically on cat on on campus, um, you know, month month and a half before the normal student body comes. 
So by the time you start, even as a freshman, you've already built a a core uh, in terms of friendships and relationships. And so you don't really start day one as a kind of a new kid on campus, not knowing anybody. And so by the time uh, school actually started in um, late August, early September, I had already built a network of 25, 30 guys that I, I played ball with. And so it was uh, very comfortable and it was a very easy transition. Now, that 30 to 45 days leading up to that and practicing in heat that I've never experienced before and humidity I've never experienced before, I wouldn't say that was an easy transition. But once you got through that, um, actually class uh, class was a, was 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 not that you know challenging of an effort. Um, you felt very comfortable already. I mean, you already been on campus for five or six weeks and so you kind of knew where to go. Um, and, uh, you know, you didn't feel like that, that new kid, um, at 18 years old. Now taking that risk to go out of state, what do you see now, Tom, as you look back as the biggest benefit of that decision? The relationships. Uh, I, I look back on the exposure, um, I had to not just, uh, folks that were from the Southeast and North Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee. But uh, also went to school with a number of folks from South Florida and from Texas and from Utah. And I, I contrast that with some of the experiences that uh, my classmates had that chose to go to school locally um, in the area. And uh, while they had great experiences, uh, their, their worldview um, stayed a little bit more concentrated in, uh, in the Ohio, Cincinnati area, where uh, I think it was a great fortune to be able to to learn about um, different parts of the country, the relationships that are as strong today as they were back then uh, that I made. And I, I just think it really opened my eyes to, to uh, a bigger landscape um, than if I would have just stayed uh, kind of in the area. Yeah, and, and when you got your undergrad finished and you were, you were through the program, did you immediately go to an MBA program or did you start to work, Tom? No, I went to, uh, I, I went to work. Um, uh, was able to get into the pharmaceutical industry at a very, very young age. And uh, I did that for a number of years as a sales professional before I went into a management role. And when I was in a management role uh, at, uh, at Santa Fe is when I decided to go back uh, and pursue my MBA, uh, which was, was certainly a, um, a, a challenging period uh, at the time uh, we had uh, three small kids and working full time and uh, pursuing an uh, MBA. So it was definitely uh, balancing a lot, <laughs> juggling a lot during that period of time. My goodness. And was the MBA online or did you have to travel for that? No, it was not. Uh, it was not online. I had one, one online course through the entire program, but it was in person at uh, Xavier University in Cincinnati, uh, typically Tuesdays and uh, Thursdays, if I recall, and then some Saturday classes. Wow, that, that must have been insane, because I remember raising our two boys and coming through that haze of a lack of sleep and all the travel for work, <laughs> putting an MBA on top of that, I just can't imagine. So you must, you must have learned tricks to sleep on your feet, leaning against a wall in an airplane, Tom. Yeah, sleep was certainly a precious commodity back then. <laughs> that, uh, you know, another brave decision. You know, I love when we when we visit with leaders through this series, I guess the one word that keeps coming up is bravery and courage and willing to take risks and for people to put themselves out there. And that's a big move because that that's a lot on your shoulders, but you're doing it at that point, Tom, because I guess you saw if you wanted to elevate, take on more responsibility in the industry, that MBA was going to serve you well. Was there an aspect of business that you wanted to really make sure you gleaned from that commitment to an MBA program? What did you see as the sort of the learning advantage it brought to you as you completed the program and then went on to use it in your career from that point on? What were the things you learned the most from being on campus at an MBA level? Yeah, so there's a few things. Um, I, 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 I 
state this to a number of folks whenever they ask about the NDA program. Um, when for myself, when I was going through undergrad, I was consumed with with football and um, your you know having a, a GPA and uh, really just thinking about what I wanted to do. And so there was an aspect of the learning environment in undergrad that was more of just kind of getting through the class and when I went through the MBA program, um, the, the, the GPA, the grades were secondary. It was more just the learning in each individual class. And so I just felt like I got so much more out of it being at a different stage in life uh, than, I, than I did uh, as an undergrad. So some of the kind of the technical things that I think were very helpful is the greater exposure to uh, the uh, accounting classes, uh, finance, just having a broader understanding uh, organizationally how how um, companies uh, think about some some of those things more on the the finance side, which uh, in my normal day to day at the time did did not have that much exposure. Uh, the the other aspects that I found very interesting were. Uh, some of the classes that were taught not by your traditional professors, but actually folks who had come out of C-suite uh, executive level positions, and they focused on strategy, corporate design, and uh, those those courses were very interesting. Um, the, the last aspect, though, for, for me, and, and kind of similar to what I was sharing as it related to my undergrad experiences, uh, the relationships. So uh, we work in the pharma biotech area, and, and Cincinnati is not exactly considered a hotbed for that. It's very heavy on the consumer, uh, kind of the CPG side, as well as we have a strong presence from uh, General Electric, uh, Procter & Gamble, Kroger. So those were a lot of the folks that were in the MBA class. And so the way they thought about their uh, business um, was a little bit different exposure than kind of what I have been raised in, in pharma and biotech. And so seeing it from that lens and uh, the way that they think about uh, whether it be uh, business strategies, tactics, um, that, that kind of breadth of exposure, uh, I think certainly is, has um, uh, been extremely beneficial to me uh, and not just being so kind of myopic in the pharma biotech area. Yeah, extremely valuable to get that broader perspective again. Now, there was a bit of a twist in your tenure with with Sanofi in the sense that you got to the district sales management level, I guess, in that 2005, 2007 range. And then mm-hmm. I, I, I know that you went in to back into the sales role in oncology. Now, oncology is probably the most interesting part of the life science category. It gets a lot of the attention, a lot of the investment. Um, the value proposition is quite high because uh, cancer is a terrible disease. I lost my dad to pancreatic and almost everybody I know has been touched by that disease in some way, shape or form. But why I make that decision to move from managing people going back and then changing your category and going heavy into oncology, Tom, what was the motivation behind that? So it's a, it's a it's a great question, and it was probably one of the biggest decisions um, that I've made that's paid long term dividends. So I had wanted to make the switch from internal medicine, uh, kind of gen meds, and and to get into oncology. And at the time, that was a, a very prestigious club at Sanofi. They, they had a lineage of um, billion dollar brands, um, really helped uh, map the category. In, in many aspects, uh, saying if you had the time along with uh, Bristol Myers Squibb. And so, uh, but the ability to make the transition from manager in gen meds to manager in oncology was next to impossible without having any type of oncology experience. And so um, it was one of those kind of classic decisions where you, you take a step back to take two or three steps forward. And so that's exactly what I did. And it was uh, just a, a, an absolute wonderful decision at the time. I had a lot, a lot of folks questioning that well, you work so hard to finally become a district manager, go through all the courses, the programs, and, and now you want to walk away from that. In my mind, it was just a, a brief pause to learn the, the space, learn the category, um, and kind of betting on the opportunity for, for myself to advance forward. And so I did that. And at the time, uh, one of the products that Sanity, Sanity had is uh, tax year which is interesting because we're still dealing with it and battling it today at Marathi in lung cancer. 
But Taxotere was an absolute wonderful product. If you're going to make the transition to oncology at the time, it had seven or eight different indications. And so you, uh, the, the training there was amazing. So we learned everything from breast to GI to lung to prostate. Um, and so it just gave you a really broad, uh, uh, understanding and an experience within uh, the solid tumor side in oncology. Yep. And after a couple of years of proving that you could handle that transition, and that's a medically, clinically heavy responsibility, um, you pivot into reimbursement. And I'm curious about how that got on your radar, Tom. So again, I, I, um, I found myself in an opportunity or put yourself in a position um, to really take advantage of, of those, uh, those opportunities that come before you. So there was a very uh, forward-thinking leader at Santa Fe who recognized the, the changing landscape in the marketplace and that the presence of payers, whether it be commercial, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, we're going to become more prominent in managing managing oncology, and uh, I know today to say that it's it's it seems like uh, kind of a just a, a generally recognized concept, but but back then in the mid two thousands, um, there was very much a, a thought that it's oncology payers don't manage it. We don't need to have a presence there. You don't really want to um, you know poke the bear, so to speak. Well, this this individual recognized that the Kind of as uh, you'll you'll appreciate this term, um, the thought of you know skating to where the puck's going, and so he created a very targeted team um, to start proactively working with commercial health plans for our oncology portfolio. So at the time, Sanity had a, a GPO team, and that was pretty standard within other companies, and they had reimbursement folks, uh, but nobody that actively worked with payers. And so I was fortunate enough to. Uh, to get the opportunity to move into that space, I, I knew how valuable those roles were from my experience on the gen med internal medicine side. And um, yeah, so that's ultimately how I kind of made that transition. And it was one of the best decisions I made in my career and kind of set me up uh, from a, uh, a platform standpoint that has led me really for the past uh, 15 or so years. Yeah, you know what? It's interesting, Tom, because I've with the wider lens across the North American pharma category over almost 40 years now for me, um, there were definitely waves where talent got attracted into different sectors or parts of the life science industry. And the best talent ended up following these trends. So when I started in the industry, there was a tremendous amount of investment in um, sales professionals, people with good business development skills. So a lot of the campus recruiting focused on that. And it's where a lot of the money from the industry was going. And then there was a wave, I would say, probably around mid-90s where managed care, especially in the U.S., became such a dominant force mm-hmm. and was uh, shifting the landscape of how decisions were being made. Of course, socialized medicine and the other parts of the world, Canada being more of a, a, a social med- med- medicine market. Uh, you also saw it on this side of the border, too, where the industry started to invest more resources and more expertise in understanding the payer environment, what the needs for reimbursement were, look, were going to look like up on this side of the border. There was also the generic battle because we had a very strong generic industry. So the brand yeah. industry was trying to figure out how to compete with that. But stateside managed care really came in in a big way in the mid nineties. And it, I think what it did is it created a, a dynamic in the market that popped up so many opportunities, just like you described at Sanofi, where the best and the brightest started to see that you guys could have a, a much bigger impact if you could help the organizations that had invested so much money in research and development actually get their drugs to the right patients at the right time at a reasonable cost. And, and that wasn't a given in the 2010 area in particular became Quite an interesting growth in employment opportunity, if you want to look at it from that perspective. A lot of talent started getting pulled into market access. And I'm not surprised that that's something that caught your attention. Um, I guess then there was a war for talent because you got recruited away from Sanofi. And that's been a pattern I've seen with 
folks that are in your wave of, of talent, Tom, just underneath the guys I started with, what drove your decision after what, almost 12 years with Sanofi to go um, take on a national role at Onyx? What was the, what were the motivations for you to make that, make that change? Yeah. So uh, that was a, looking back on it, it seems like, oh, that was a very um, straightforward decision. Um, at the time, though, it was uh, somewhat controversial. Um, and what I mean by that is uh, Onyx was not a sure thing. Uh, the the product they were looking to move forward and commercialize, Caprolis, um, you know, at the time, they had a 34% uh, chance based on the data available um, to receive a positive, positive nod from the regulatory authorities and, uh, and move forward. Um, but I had... I felt like I had maximized uh, a number of different opportunities at, at Santa Fe, and they were uh, very, very gracious to me in all the different um, kind of places that let me go throughout my career. But I wanted to bet on myself. Um, I, I wanted to have the opportunity to take on a bigger role, um, more of a national scope, and uh, and I wanted to bet on myself that the experiences, the, the um, different areas uh, that I had, used and, and uh, employed at, at Sanofi that I could kind of take that at a bigger level and, and make an impact on an organization. And I was fortunate enough to, to be given the opportunity. Um, we uh, ultimately ended up receiving a, a positive ODAC and uh, set out some pretty bold objectives um, to compete in the marketplace. And we were very successful commercially um, from an access standpoint from sales just just overall uh, commercializing uh, Kyperolis and it ultimately led to um, the uh, the acquisition uh, a few years later by by Amgen and it was just just a wonderful experience um, not only the success in betting yourself betting on yourself and the willingness to take that risk but it also really sharpened my belief in why culture matters so much. Um, it, it was, without a doubt, one of the best cultures that uh, I had been involved in, in in my professional career. And there was a, a common theme that you saw at Onyx, that there was an alignment uh, across the organization. When I say across the organization, I'm not just speaking commercial, but commercial, medical, uh, regular, the, the whole deal of one common theme, and that was to build a successful organization and uh, and and that translated into a lot of the energies and kind of that commonality of uh, the overall feeling and the culture you have within the organization. And it really stuck with me of just how important that is to kind of what we do every day and the ability to generate that and to um, build that infectious culture can just act as a complete force multiplier in the marketplace. Yeah, and the other interesting aspect of that too, Tom, is you think about your trail, being able to see opportunities, maybe take some risks that other people weren't willing to take, but also stay true to something that for you personally was quite important, which was to keep your family grounded in the Cincinnati area, right? Because you didn't have to move them uh, all over the country, did you? No, no. I um, it's it's one of the biggest magic tricks I've uh, <laughs> been able to do. Somehow managing uh, markets uh, across the U.S., later across the world, um, out of uh, out of Cincinnati. And you know, I really kind of credit it to some of the leaders I've I've worked for um, that. Their, their belief in my ability to manage teams virtually um, while still effective in delivering on our objectives um, was a little bit of uh, forward thinking. Uh, you know, we kind of think about everything today post, you know, uh, March 2020 and that thought of virtual work and work from home and, and what have you. Is, is obviously more in fashion now and acceptable, um, but it wasn't always back then. And so I had to be very, oh, no. and I had to be very selective 
of choosing organizations um, that would allow for that. And so there was a number of opportunities that uh, I wasn't the optimal candidate or um, because of my inability to to move that uh, that I passed, but um, or, or passed on me. Um, but it, you know, it ended up working out um, in the end. What do you now that you've, Tom, gotten to a point where your family's been the benefactor of that stability? Um, I'll ask you the pointed question, but do you think it was worthwhile for you to have made those choices in your in your business career to give your family that stability in in the Cincinnati area? One hundred percent. I think there's, there's a, you know, I'll, I'll take a step back and, and back to one of the questions you asked me about um, my MBA program. We had a, a professor who was a, a retired executive, um, one of those individuals I had mentioned before that uh, really made an impact on me. And I remember having a discussion with him uh, outside of class, and he he made a comment to me that that really uh, stuck with me. And he said, every, uh, every rung, every role, as you kind of progress and move up, also recognize that there is a little piece of you um, that you're going to have to accept the sacrifice. And I, I, I think about that often when I reflect on opportunities that uh, maybe were not available because of my inability to relocate, um, but I willingly chose, you know, to pass or they they chose to pass on me. But what was that sacrifice? Well, the, you know, the sacrifice, I guess, is from somewhat of a, a career progression in certain areas. But then what's the gain? And and the gain is that, uh, the you know, my, my family was able to have very similar experiences that I had as a child and, and go to a similar type of school system and have their grandparents very involved in their lives. And uh, to me, uh, those those benefits are um, far outweigh um, an additional career opportunity. And it's amazing how those value choices that we make, Tom, suddenly become um, right in front of you and, and they can just come upon you rather quickly. I think um, I talked to many folks who shared the same perspective that um, they had to make some important choices, but oftentimes they didn't feel prepared and it was, they felt a little bit under pressure because things were dropped in front of them. They didn't realize the ramifications or hadn't thought them through. Sometimes of course they look back with regret. Sometimes they look back and think, gosh, I'm glad I decided to make the right decisions, but very few people will tell me, oh, I'm so glad I traded in my family for my career. <laughs> you don't get too many of our guests saying that. Um, but, and I had the same challenge, I suppose, as you did about the same time in my family life. I had two little boys and Chris and I were in Southern California. And at the time we was working for Allergan and there was a tremendous amount of change happening around me. There was a new VP of commercial that had come in and was brought in to do a turnaround and uh, he froze all job offers when he came through the door because he wanted to have a chance to assess the business and the talent. And it just so happened that I had three jobs that I was competing for internally, and they were all at the offer stage. So I was keen to kind of pick one of them. And I remember he invited me to go into his office about a month after he took over, and uh, he did this for all his his people and his direct and second level reports. He said, uh, I want you to come in and tell me, you know, what your career path looks like from your perspective. And then I'll give you some feedback as to what I've seen and heard so far. Maybe we can come to alignment. And so yeah, all of us were pretty nervous as you can imagine having that sure. meeting with the new, with the new sheriff in town. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, luckily, luckily for me, this guy, Mike, uh, grew up in the same Northern Ontario mining community as my dad of all places. Um, and I knew a little bit about him uh, from other folks who uh, also work with him in Canada. And I was down in California, maybe a year before he got there. And actually the funny thing was the first week on campus, uh, he came over and said, Hey, you're a Canadian boy. Did you find any hockey down here yet? <laughs> <laughs> so we started playing hockey together with a bunch of the Northern uh, based Northern guys who had come down 
all the guys from Chicago, Milwaukee, upstate New York. We, we found some hockey together. It was kind of funny. But uh, I remember sitting down with Mike and he asked me, he said, so what do you want? And I, I gave him the answer I thought he wanted to hear. And about five minutes into rambling on about it and not making a very convincing argument, he stopped me. He said, look, we, we need to pause this. Can you go out to Karen's office out front, reschedule for a couple of weeks from now? Um, this is not going to be a productive conversation. And I was really taken aback by that comment. He said to me, uh, do you read your kids any bedtime stories? You know, you know, any sort of popular, like Alice in Wonderland. I said, sure. He goes, well, you remember the part where Alice goes to the Cheshire cat and just trying to find her way? And I said, yeah. He goes, don't make me the Cheshire cat. Cause if you don't know where you're going, it doesn't matter which way I send you. <laughs> And I left his office. <laughs> I walked out and I remember my friend Kevin was down the hall who I played hockey with. He was from Minnesota. He came over to me and said, Did you, are you okay? That was quick. Like everybody was watching, right? They're looking out their windows. And my one-on-one only lasted about 10 minutes. And I walked out with a bit of a hangdog look on my face. And I said, no, Kevin, I think it's okay. I think it's okay. <laughs> I need to go for a walk. So I went for a walk and I was thinking, wow, I did, that didn't go the way I'd hoped it had gone. And I better get my act together. So I called my mentor, a guy named Mel, who was uh, who had brought me down to California, invited him over to the house, and he sat me down and said, "Look, you really got to start thinking right now and make your decision based on what do you really value, and you've got a chance to go into the VP level roles and basically travel all the world." He said, "But I did that, and it cost me my first marriage." So these things come with sacrifices and costs. I'm not saying you can't do it and be successful, but you really ought to understand what you're signing up for. And then your lateral move offer is an interesting one, but do you really want to be on that side of the business in the long term? Because once you make the move at this level, that's who you become. You're going to become a surgical guy. And is that business your long-term play? It may or may not be, but think it through because when you do that at the director level, you know, it's, it's, it's not, you can't come back. It's just more difficult. And then he said, the other opportunity, which is on the table for you is one that's going to teach you how to be a great entrepreneur. And he said, frankly, I think that's your long-term play. If, if, and I did, I asked him what he thought was my long-term. He said, you know, I brought you down here and I feel a little bit responsible for the decision because I mentored you to come down here, but I've watched you and as I went through my challenges and changes, I was concerned about the people I'd sponsored to come down here and what was going to happen to them. And you need, you need to appreciate how much I see your family matters to you. I didn't know that until you came here and I can see it so clear the way that you and Chris parent your children and how much effort and energy you put into staying in touch with both your families. And I think you need to give that some serious consideration. And that was prescient. I mean, that was so important to me that he kind of shook me to make me understand that. So I quickly found my way back to the upstate New York area, which put us closer to family. And then Chris and I were able to move back to California or from California to New York and then back to Toronto. And like you, Tom, it was a big part of the trade-off of decisions we had to make as a couple that we wanted to emphasize family and the upbringing and the environment that we wanted to have our kids in. So I can very much relate to, how important that decision was for you to give your your family that stability in, in the Cincinnati area and, and the roots and the grandparenting and the friends that are a big part of that community. But you didn't slow down. I mean, you went on to a couple other interesting plays, the nanostring technology play. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because nanotechnology started to get on everybody's radar you know, around the 2015-16 timeframe. And you landed in with those guys. They were out of Seattle, were they not? Correct. Yes, out of the out on Lake Union. So, and Nana, what was what was the like? How did they get you to come across and then bring your expertise and market access over to what they were trying to do? So, for me, it was uh, it was a new challenge. Um, so, Nanostring at the time was making pivot uh, from their uh, more of their consumables. Um, the more capital equipment into uh, diagnostics. And so, you know, I, I had the experience working on the part B side, on the infuse side, 
uh, in market access, had the experience working in the Part D on the oral side of market access. Um, but diagnostics was a, a whole new venture. And so uh, to, to me, it was extremely attractive to gain that experience working in, in diagnostics. And they're also developing companion diagnostics for a number of uh, major projects on the market, such as Replimid, as well as um, Keytruda. And so it was a fascinating, fascinating experience because culturally, you had an organization that was built very much like uh, medical equipment, uh, very transactional sale, um, where, where you, you don't have kind of this long-term relationships that you see in pharma and biotech. And so we had a number of folks that came over on the diagnostic side that were primarily out of the pharma biotech. We had a handful that did have diagnostic experience. And so it was the, the most uh, extreme learning environment that I had ever been a part of. And I, I say this often as we think about diagnostics and in, in, in oncology and in market access, there's a number of safety nets um, for patients, for, for access, uh, challenging. You have to navigate a number of areas, but uh, th there is kind of a safety net in the U.S. For diagnostics, it's walking a tightrope without a net. And so you really have to um, go to great lengths and think about things in a very creative way uh, to be able to achieve uh, essentially funding and reimbursement. So uh, it, it, the the other aspect about data string that I, I speak of that without a doubt uh, I've had the great fortune of working with a lot of brilliant people, especially on the R and D side throughout my career. The folks at Nanostring are are at the top. Um, the the assays, the consumables, the technology that they were developing, as you kind of allude to, is just absolutely cutting edge. So it was very um, it was invigorating to be a, a part of an organization like that. And, you know, I originally went there to set up the commercial structure, uh, establish funding and reimbursement in the U.S., and then um, in, in kind of, <laughs> uh, I don't say half stance, but uh, just the opportunity presented itself. And the next thing you know, I'm, I'm up in your neck of the woods. And uh, learning about the, the HCA bodies and submissions into the four major provinces within Canada, and uh, it was it was just an outstanding uh, experience learning. Um, and we ultimately uh, had some success doing it, and then uh, kind of pivoted from doing it in Canada to working in Europe, and uh, so spent a lot of time focused in on Germany as well as uh, the um, working with Knights up in uh, Manchester in, in, in UK. And so, uh, you know, we were able to uh, be very successful as far as uh, moving forward and securing funding in, in those two countries as well as France and a couple of other countries in, in, uh, in Europe through access schemes. And uh, quite, quite shortly after, we started to kind of turn our eye to the Pacific Rim. So uh, looking to commercialize in, in Singapore and in Thailand and uh, in Australia. And uh, just a just a, a crazy ride um, that in a larger organization, as you know, those roles are really occupied by numerous folks within market access, numerous different country uh, heads, and uh, we were a, a small, nimble shop. Um, really tried to maximize resources and uh, just kept taking our learnings from one country to the next, and uh, it was just a it was a wild ride and a terrific experience. Yeah, and uh, I'm sure you you were able to stock up on those frequent flyer points too, right? I mean, you were all over the place. Uh, yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Getting used to those massive time time zone cha changes and challenges, and uh, those long trips and flights. Yeah, that's a that's a a, a, a thing you want to do when you're a younger man, because man, I'll tell you, those are tougher travel uh, challenges as you as you get a little older, but. Uh, I, I love that you took that on because there was so much noise around nanotechnology at that time and be able to get into a player like Nanostring and the success they were having globally must have felt like you found the needle in the haystack because there were a lot of there was a lot of noise and a lot of um, hype around nanotechnology, but not many of them were able to turn it into commercially viable technology. So that must have been so much fun to have got in with that that group had some success 
And then parlaying that, because now you were at a very executive level, you'd proven to yourself and to other folks in the marketplace that you could handle the executive leadership roles in market access. So that created an opportunity, a couple of opportunities for you back over on the oncology side with Kite and with Verestem, right? So it did. tell me a little bit about that, because now as VP with global and, and, and domestic responsibilities, you had the whole functional category under your jurisdiction. Did, did you enjoy that level of challenge, Tom? I, I did. And I, to, to me, you know, a lot of uh, folks in the U.S. have a, uh, a romance about um, the opportunity to go into global roles. And um, what, what I learned is that from an access standpoint, and, and you know this as a Canadian, there's, there's a straightforward um, pathway. I found working with the, the various countries, um, the, while the process can be a little bit longer, the, the process is transparent. And um, you know kind of the, the, the roadmap of XYZ, what you need to do with the HTA body, the submissions you need to make. And if you're able to meet certain criteria, um, you should have some success in terms of securing funding for whether it be a therapeutic or diagnostic or whatever, um, you know, category you're in. Whereas the, the U.S. Uh, healthcare system is so disparate and fragmented um, that in many ways it's, it's much more complex than, than what you actually deal with in um, countries that have a, a sort of a vertically integrated healthcare system, so to speak. Um, so just having that, that, that experience and that breadth across uh, numerous different markets um, was, was, was very, very helpful. And, and ultimately, I knew I wanted to get back into uh, therapeutics and oncology. And that's where the Veristem opportunity presented itself. And, and really, it was my first true opportunity to build out the entire market access operation from soup to nuts. And what I mean by that is the opportunity to build out distribution, patient services, uh, payer, GPO, pricing, um, really the whole, the whole shoot and match. And I had the opportunity to do that um, by a uh, work for just a terrific uh, chief commercial officer at Veristem. And, uh, but he, but he, he was aggressive. And so I think I started there in February and kind of get your sea legs underneath you. And, and by, uh, the first of March, um, as we started to get indications, um, from the FDA when our approval was going to be that I need you to have all this done in about four months. <laughs> so, um, the, so, so somehow with, uh, kind of used the MacGyver analogy with duct tape, band-aids and paper clips, we, uh, we built out, uh, distribution. I, I had a great team of folks that, that, uh, worked with me on this, but we built our distribution patient services, um, our whole GPO payer pricing, and we got it done. And so we were ready to, uh, to rock and roll pending the FDA decision by, uh, mid August of that year. So a little bit more than, than four months, but, but not much. And, uh, you know, so it was, uh, it was definitely a, a, an eye-opening uh, experience and um, certainly uh, pressure packed. And I think I probably developed some angina over that summer. Um, but we, uh, we ultimately were in a position to have a successful launch of our, of our asset Capictra. Uh, and uh, so it was um, just, just, a, just a wonderful experience. You know, Tom, it's really uh, a pleasure to watch people like you who made those value choices through your career to make sure your family wasn't shortchanged and you made that a priority. But at the same time, you became what I would say is a subject matter expert and recognizing your field as like the, a top performer because all through that journey, particularly in market access, particularly in oncology and particularly in high profile technology plays like nanotechnology, you know, that those moves. And then I got to watch you and your team, particularly at Marathi. It was just really fun for me to watch you go back and recruit the best people that you'd work with, bring them into this like dream team uh, into a startup environment and have a chance to do everything that you learned to do in market access 
and have you know full control, full budgetary responsibility. You could pick the people you want. You could organize the structure the way you wanted. You could figure out the strategy for market access. You were handed the keys, and it was tremendously successful. So you, it must be so gratifying for you to feel like, well, yeah, I made some choices. I I wanted to keep my family stable. I wanted to give them that those roots in the Cincinnati area, the the upbringing that you got to enjoy, but not compromise the value you could create for the industry and have it come to a bit of a pinnacle, if you want to call it that. I, I can't tell you how impressed I am with your team and what with what you guys have done in market access and value at Marathi. So for you, what what is in particular stood out for you with that group? So I, I, I appreciate the kind words and um, one of the lessons I learned very early on in my career, I remember being a, uh, a young district manager and our um, the, the head of commercial at the time and uh, in, in a joking but serious manner, uh, he said that the key to professional success is to hire people that are a lot smarter than you. And it's just, it's stuck with me throughout my career. And that's what I've tried to do is not only hire folks that are smarter than me, um, but also share my values. And so I, I think that just came to an absolute crescendo at, at Marathi. Uh, we, we, it's just an exceptionally, exceptionally talented group of individuals, but all have shared values. And so to me, it was table stakes as far as the technical expertise that they were going to bring to the table um, in terms of the strategy that we wanted to deploy. But what was so exciting about this opportunity is that our competitor is a very well-established organization that we were never going to out-resource um, and that had been in the marketplace for decades, so long deep relationships with some of our biggest customers. So the question was, how could we develop a strategy, um, not only on kind of the technical aspects of access and commercialization, but also on some of the quote-unquote softer areas, um, culture, execution, um, customer service, that would dif differentiate, differentiate us in the marketplace. And so that's really where we locked in. And obviously that, that kind of crosses paths of, of where you and I uh, worked um, uh, extensively together. And that, that to me is the thing as I reflect back on what we did here is that, you know, we were that quote unquote David versus Goliath. Uh, you read Malcolm Gladwell's book and there's a lot of um, interesting aspects of that story that uh, are kind of glossed over, but uh, that, that was us. And, uh, we we went head to head with uh, with with just a behemoth and came out the other side where we're exiting this year as um, overwhelming market leaders and that's not just from a, a sales standpoint but also when I look at our access strategies that we put forward um, as as we talk a lot about in our personal success plan. We're, we're not even in uh, December, and we have green shoots across the board, and there's a lot of energy and effort, but those green shoots are directly correlated to the, the commercial success that we were able to deploy. So th those things are, um, it's extremely um, uh, rewarding to kind of look back and to think uh, a crew of folks that uh, are not the biggest team, but uh, a very tight team that were lockstep on priorities, lockstep on goals, and um, went forward and, and had success uh, going against a, a major competitor. And we had a lot of fun along the way. So, Yeah, it's a small but mighty team. And it's funny, that was the first impression that I got uh, when I met your team down in the San Diego area at the office. And the first night back at the hotel, of course, I always call home and Chris asked me, so what's the new client like? And I said, wow, I was really impressed. It's the first time I've been in the room with them. And the energy level, the camaraderie, the give and take, the, you know, the the debates, the needling, the teasing was like a was like watching, you know, a family <laughs> go at it in a very positive way, but not be 
unwilling to take each other on. And it was hard to tell who the boss was in the room. Like everybody was throwing elbows and having some fun with it, but also getting serious about the decisions that needed to be made that were critical that in that window. I, I can't tell you how much of a positive first impression I got. And then what's else, what also stands out to me, and the reason we wanted to have you on as a guest was not only was it commercially very successful and your colleagues in sales and marketing and the other functions all did their jobs very well, mm-hmm. but your group not only was functionally successful, but I remember hearing that there, there was always an energy within the company to make sure people were held accountable to culture. And your group, two years in a row, has been the positive outlier in a, in a very good culture. You're the extraordinarily positive group. So that, to me, stands out because you can't just say, well, it was all because Marathi created this overall culture and we were just the benefactor. You know, the tide floated all boats here. No, no, it's a very good culture, but like your scores were off the charts good. What do you think explains that, Tom? Why is there such a esprit de corps with your group? Why do you get so much discretionary effort? I mean, to a person in your market access and value team, there's almost 30 of you now. You get every ounce of people's discretionary effort and focus. They run through the wall for each other. What explains that? So um, it's, it's, a, it's, I think, a great question, um, and I, I, I think it's – I really think the answer is not as complicated as it might seem. Um, so to me, uh, it, it started in the build-out of the team and the profile of the individuals that we wanted to have us join us on this mission. and. Uh, you know, I alluded to the, the technical skills that one brings to the table is just um, table stakes. You, you have to be excellent at what you do. But as important as the technical skills um, is, we, we wanted folks with shared values that that had that North Star, that we're going to do things the right way, um, and that wanted to be in an environment where it wasn't about me, but it was about we. Um, and the the collective was the most important. So we 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 attracted uh, folks with a lot of kind of shared commonalities, and I think that was then leveraged as we put a rigor around how we wanted to operate, and that rigor was really quite simple. And you helped guide us on a lot of it, but it was really focused on two areas: crystal clear direction and clarity. Um, around our priorities. And if they didn't fit into that box, then the question was asked, why are you doing it? And so we we had a, a everybody was rowing the boat, so to speak, in, in, in the same direction. We, we knew at the end of the year, this is what we wanted to accomplish. And that was transparent from everybody within the department. The, the second the second piece was the the willingness and the openness to have transparent conversations around how we can get better, how we can get better individually, how we can get better as a group, how we can get better as a team. And that just didn't happen one time. That didn't just happen two times. It was just a regular cadence as far as how we operate. And so you know, in my my mind, those things um, brought a uh, where you had a recipe of, of great individuals, good people, good values that were shared, and then you put a little bit of structure around it, and it acted as a force multiplier. And so that that to me is um, some of the things that I look back on of what enabled us to be successful. Um, the the other aspect that I think is really important. And it's something I try to model is the leadership style I believe in is that um, you don't make it about you. Um, it's, it's, it's not about what, what Tom's trying to get or Tom's trying to go or where he's trying to, you know, it's, that's not the important thing. The important thing is what can we do as a team? What can we accomplish as a team? How are we successful as a team? And if we do that and do the right things and, 
put pelts on the walls, I like to say, then the rest will take care of itself. And I think that the other thing that your team did better than most teams I've had a chance to work with that have good years is I really like that there was this balanced approach of, of course, focusing on goals and performance and the rational sort of left brain stuff, but there was an equal emphasis. And at times even this was the primary emphasis when it needed to be was, yeah, but we did hire purposefully and onboard purposefully and create a culture strategy rather than just a bunch of core values we forgot about on some website. You actively as a team ensured that people were being held accountable to their behavior against those core values. And I remember Tom, you even encouraged everybody to have 180 feedback, which we had to do during COVID on zoom calls rather than in a room, but it gave everybody and you, you went first, which I thought was very impressive to say, look, we've said we stand for these core values. We need to know as the leadership team in market value and access, we set the tone. So let's start with me. Am I perfect in my execution of these core values? And you knew you weren't because nobody is. But what I admired was that you made yourself vulnerable, took the feedback, listened to it carefully, came back to your team very thoughtfully and said, okay, here's what I heard. Here are a couple of things I know I can do better going forward. Thank you for the feedback. And that set the tone across the entire team. It just cascaded down through. So everybody knew if you want to work in this department and flourish, it's part of what you sign up for. It's it's a garden that we all need to tend together. We can't let the weeds pop up here of when behavior goes sideways and we don't honor our core values. I think based on out, the outside observation, I've tried to share your model as much as I can with other folks who are building a team from scratch and asking me, well, what's the best you've ever seen? Well, Tom, like your group may the best be the best I've ever seen at those ingredients you described, the hiring purposefully looking for core values, yet diverse backgrounds. And then having clear line of sight to what are we going to do as a team as opposed to how do I win? And then sitting down and getting to know what are the two or three core values that are going to create the best atmosphere to people to give their discretionary effort to want to row harder once they're in the boat. And then making sure that there was accountability to that. I mean, to me, that's the that's the chapter on culture strategy right there. And it it's proven itself a couple of years in a row here. So it's not a fluke. And it's proven itself both in easy times and in difficult times because pre-launch, it was just good conversation. But then all of a sudden the switch gets flipped, what, about a year and a half ago, and it's off to the races. And your team, when the game was on, also showed that you could be a positive influence on the rest of the organization, a role model for the rest of the organization because you had high performance and you had a high engagement at the same time when the lights got bright. So that's why, to me, it's been so impressive, Tom. And I think that's um, something I wanted to make sure that you had a chance to talk about here in our conversation. No, thank you. It's, uh, you know, (laughs) you have different experiences professionally. And um, I I think it's very easy to cite um, the accomplishments that that you achieve as a team and, commercial success or whatever metric you're looking at. But to, to me, th- those things wane, right? You, know, you can put them on a, uh, down on paper, but those things wane. To me, the, the lasting um, aspects of any experiences, did you, did you build relationships? Did you build a culture? Did you allow people to stretch? Did you enable and create an environment that folks that that were with you on this journey are better after they've gone through the journey. And I think if you did that, that to me is more um, lasting. And so when I reflect back on really a number of my experiences, um, but most notably this Marathi experience, that the team collectively and individually is you know, however this ends, um, based upon our um, our recent news, uh, people are going to walk away much better than they were when they uh, they started um, here a few years ago. 
which which as a leader, uh, I don't think you would want to accomplish anything more. No, I couldn't agree with you more. And the other thing, Tom, if you wouldn't mind, because I think it's important for me to circle back with you on this. It's been inherent in our conversation here this morning. But what, now when you look back at the choices that you made and and you were able to to create quite good outcomes on the professional side, but on the personal side, that the, the decision that you made over and over again to give your family a strong environment to grow up and that you knew was going to be conducive to their well-being. What now do you see as the harvest from that? Because your, your kids are moving forward, but what are you most proud of with your family? So two things. Um, they've had the opportunity to have a similar experience that, that I had uh, growing up, which the, the parochial school system and the relationships that come out of that in the Cincinnati area are, are lasting. It was one of the first questions you asked me. And so my kids have had that same type of experience, the same type of opportunity that, that I did. And to me, that was very important. The, the second is um, their relationship that they have with their grandma and grandpa is, you know, it's not something where they just, you know, they see him on, on a holiday <laughs> or they might see him for a week out of the summer. They are intimately involved in their lives. Um, and, you know, if I would have made, other decisions where uh, we, we weren't here, um, those relationships would, would not be at the depth and the level that they are. And it's, it's invaluable. I look at the relationships that my girls have with both their grandma and grandpa. Um, it's truly amazing. And then uh, with, with my youngest, my son, with my, my dad, um, it's, it's a pretty cool thing to see. And so um, that 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 is worth it uh, with having the, you know, the acceptance of maybe not taking that, uh, that, that step on one additional rung or delaying the opportunity to do that. Um, absolutely worth it. Yeah, that's lovely. Tom, is there anything we haven't talked about in your journey that you'd like to chat a little bit about here as we wind down? I mean, we've covered uh, a number of things pretty extensively. The, the one, the one aspect that I think is very much intertwined to, as you were talking about, the ability to stay local and in those decisions, that I, I think is just important to to mention is I've been extremely fortunate throughout my career to uh, work for leaders individuals that became mentors, became friends, huge influencers on, on my professional career. But I've been very fortunate to work for individuals that were willing to um, give me that opportunity to do this remote. And so, you know, it's one thing for me to make the, the decision to do it, but it's another thing for somebody on the other side saying, okay, we'll let you do it. And so yeah. um, those, those individuals um, have been essential. And so, um, that's just one aspect I don't think we really mentioned as much. Um, it's a two-way street, and I was very fortunate to have some uh, some wonderful um, leaders um, that I had the opportunity to work for. I'm glad you pointed that out because we now have this new lens that we look at the work world through, right? This post-COVID lens, and we think, oh, of course Tom could do that. Well, no, hang on. Between 2005 and 2019, that was highly unusual uh, to, to get those kind of progressive roles, especially as you pivoted into all response, like responsibility for all the U.S. and then North America and then global, uh, mm-hmm. and to be able to do that out of a home base in the Midwest and have your cake and eat it too is a testimony not only to you, Tom, but to your point. Progressive employers who said, Hey, listen, Tom, if you can manage the, the schedule, you can manage your priorities, then, you know, we don't care where you live. And mm-hmm. that was that was the exception, not the rule before COVID. And now it's the rule. It's people look through a different lens. Thank goodness. Sure. But, yeah, I, I'm glad you pointed that out because I had that same experience, right, where 
when I put my family first at that pivotal moment, I was lucky enough to have support from some key individuals. And then to start my own business again, it, it afforded me that opportunity to give my, my family what they needed, but to live where we wanted to have the kids raised and the experiences we wanted to give them. And my clients have done that for me. So you had bosses that did that for you and my clients do that for me. And you're certainly part of that mix. So I want, I want to thank you, Tom, as we're here that I get the chance to work with really creative and interesting people like you and your team. And, you know, there you are personally based in the Midwest and your company and on the West coast. And we get to do some fun things together because like you, um, I'm willing to travel and, uh, and I, I enjoy the engagement and the, and the challenge, but I also want to make sure that there's stability here for my family. So yeah, it's, it's really nice to see this change in our society, our work society. So the next generation doesn't have to fight so darn hard as you and I maybe had to, to create, you know, those dynamic progressive opportunities and constantly have the compromise of where am I living? I've got a son right now who's working in the bank industry and he's only spent three days in the first three years with a major bank in the office doing some really interesting things. So yeah, it's a really, it's a really cool thing to watch. Absolutely. Really, really appreciate your time this morning. That was a lot of fun and I'm glad you shed some light on um, why you made some of the decisions that you made. It's been a great run and, uh, I'm really impressed with what you're doing there at Marathi. I hope it continues. And I'm really curious to see where that's going to take you over the next several chapters of your story, because up until this point, it's been, it's been interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Rob, I appreciate it. And I uh, really appreciate the opportunity uh, to do this. Um, and, uh, and as we say, when we talk, I, I always find our chat helpful, useful, and productive, and, and make me think about a few things walking away. So thanks again. Thank you, Tom. We'll be talking soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Rob. Take care. Bye.